0: For almost our entire history, the only way we were able to look out at the universe was with optical astronomy, with the type of light that our eyes are sensitive to. Through telescopes, through cameras, and through later developments like CCDs, we were able to extend that beyond what our eyes could see to what our equipment could see. Could see. And this included going beyond the visible light wavelength range to high energy photons like gamma rays, x rays, and ultraviolet light, and low energy photons like infrared, microwave, and radio light as well. Yet that's still restrictive. That's only the electromagnetic spectrum. Recently, we've learned how to measure the universe in an entirely new way through its emission of gravitational waves. We saw this with LIGO and its detection of merging black holes and neutron stars and as we look to the future we have new advanced experiments that are going to be coming out and shedding a whole new type of view on the universe that'll enable us to see what's out there like never before. What does the future of this gravitational wave astronomy look like? find out on this edition of the starts with a bang podcast There are many ways we can conceive of the universe and many ways we have to investigate it. But one of the newest and most exciting is through gravitational waves, through the ripples of space-time itself that propagate to us at the speed of light. And here to join us to help explain what the latest developments are and what makes them so exciting is Dr. Ira Thorpe. Ira works for NASA and is one of the key members of the ESA led LISA mission, which is going to be the first gravitational wave detector in space. Ira, I'm so pleased to welcome you and. Pleased to have you on the Starts With a Bang podcast.
1: Well, Thanks, Ethan. I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk with you and your audience uh, about this really exciting field.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of crazy that gravitational waves were one of the very first consequences that were predicted from Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it took pretty much a full century from when general relativity was first derived and we first realized gravitational waves should exist to when we were able to detect them. Now, I know that you were someone who, you know started working on this back when it was still in the early stages back when people were still talking about like will we be able to see it will we ever be able to get these gravitational wave detectors to the required sensitivity and the last five years have really been a revolution in terms of science what is it like? What was it like for you to sort of live through that revolution, to go from this entire field of science of gravitational waves to have it be this purely theoretical field where experimentalists only were placing like limits, limits, limits on what they can see, to actually having at this point more than than I think four dozen events where we can point to them and say that was a gravitational wave detection.
1: Yeah, well I guess in summary it's it's been a lot of fun um to to witness this and I I should say that uh as far as my own personal research which is focuses on these uh space-based gravitational wave detectors uh, particularly this mission called LISA uh laser interferometer space antenna which we'll talk about more I'm sure uh you know that hasn't so far we haven't built that mission and so so far my own personal research hasn't directly contributed to that so I want to make sure credit is uh given where credit is due um but certainly you know I've been in the field since uh, graduate school, or maybe even a little bit of of undergraduates, where I first learned about the detector called LIGO, uh, which made the the famous first detection and has contributed to the bulk of the detections uh, since then. Um, And yeah, it's gone for the point where we would go to scientific conferences, you know, we would be sitting in a small little room with just a few other people working on that same thing, and all the major talks would be going on in the big ballrooms. To uh, you know, once the detection was made, well, there were entire conferences organized, and all of a sudden we were in the big ballroom, and not only that, we were you know on the front cover of the New York Times, and and, and all of that kind of thing. So uh, it's been been quite a ride. Uh, I, I like to say that um, for a while, when I would go to a you know any kind of social function, cocktail party type of thing, if somebody asked me what I did, I said, okay, I got to you know get ready to explain something for for 20 minutes uh, so that I can get them to understand it. Whereas after the LIGO result. I just said, oh, I work in gravitational waves. And they said, yeah, I heard about that on Letterman or something. So it's, it's been quite a sea change in uh, the way our, our field is viewed from outside, both scientifically and even in the um, inter- scientifically interested public.
0: I think, I think that's really wonderful to hear, that uh, that it's made it a lot easier for you to sort of go somewhere and give people a sort of five-word explanation of what you do, and they say, oh, I know what that is now. Like, that that to me is a big victory in the field of science communication. But it's also an enormous victory in terms of science. You know, we, we had expected for a long time that when you have two masses orbiting one another, they are going to, in spiral. They are going to emit gravitational radiation. Aviation. These orbits are not going to be these same ellipses forever and ever and ever. They are going to decay. And now that we've seen gravitational waves directly, that we've seen black holes and neutron stars in spiraling and merging, we can be pretty confident. I won't say extremely confident because you always have to test your theories in every new regime that you can. But I'm gonna say we can be very confident that Einstein's description of the universe, even when it comes to gravitational waves, is still valid.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think in many ways, The first gravitational wave detection, that's called GW150914, uh, was the perfect example of uh, sort of a first discovery. Because on the one hand, as you say, it confirmed and validated this theory dating back to Einstein, which is general relativity our description of gravity. And so far, general relativity has passed every test that we've thrown at it with flying colors. But you might imagine that you know if it's going to break, it's going to break in the most extreme conditions, which is the kind of conditions you have when two black holes are crashing into one another. So, on you know on the one hand, that was that was the the, the great validation. But gravitational wave astro- astronomy is not just a uh, it's not just a, a physics experiment. It's not just a a test of general relativity is much more than that it's a way of understanding the universe as you alluded to in your inner introduction and there you know the first detection was a surprise so it it asked a question rather than answering a question and what i mean by that were the the two black holes uh that were detected were much larger than any of the, the black holes that we expected to find and meaning the black holes that come from uh the death of of uh large massive stars uh, we would expect these things to be tens of solar mass. These were 30 solar mass objects, and they've seen even heavier ones since then. And we really don't know where these things come from. So that's you know, kind of the motivation of going and observing the universe in a new way, is not just to see the things that we expect. That's nice, you know, see the, that, that Einstein's gravity description is correct, but see things we don't expect and you know, provoke further questions and further investigations and motivate the theory. Um, you know, that's the real motivation for doing this kind of work
0: yeah and from uh, at least right now from an astronomical point of view you know you can say well before LIGO how did we know about black holes and the biggest ways we knew about them were twofold one was if you saw an object like a star that emitted its own light and it had a massive companion that, um, that was causing the star itself to move in a wobbly orbit but that companion emitted no light you could at least infer its mass and so that's one way of measuring like well if you have these dark objects out there like black holes and they're orbiting another star um, what will you see in terms of the star and so you can get some mass values from that but the most common way Comes from what we call binary black holes, or what we at least used to call binary black holes, where you had an X ray emitting system that was a star and a black hole orbiting one another, where the black hole was siphoning and devouring mass off of the star. And it emits X rays, and you can tell from the X ray emission what is the mass of that black hole that's there. And like you said, we saw all sorts of different systems that exhibited this behavior, but they all had black holes in the same sort of strange mass range. It went from about five solar masses up to maybe, you know, more than 10, but I'll say not really more than 20 solar masses. So you had all of these black holes that we were seeing, but one of the fun things that LIGO and Virgo and gravitational wave detectors in general have taught us is that that mass range is only what we're seeing with our electromagnetic eyes. When we look in gravitational waves, we're seeing that there are actually black holes that seem to go up to 30, 40, even 50 solar masses, and it is a puzzle to figure out exactly where those come from. And we're also seeing black holes that appear to be there below five solar masses, maybe as little as if we look at that first neutron star-neutron star merger and the black hole that resulted from that, maybe as little as two and a half two and three quarters solar masses as well. So on the low end we previously had something that we called a mass gap and LIGO and other gravitational wave detectors might be closing that gap. We might find that population of black holes there after all and on this high end of the stellar mass black hole range we actually see heavier black holes than we had ever seen looking astronomically. And this to me is Is a huge, um, it's a hugely emphatic illustration of how powerful it can be to look at the universe with a different set of eyes. To look at the universe not in just electromagnetic light, but to look in this fundamentally new way of gravitational radiation.
1: Yeah, and we we call this uh, discovery potential. Um, so this is this idea of you know looking where you haven't looked before, looking in a way that you haven't looked before, and you know it can be a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand you're going to invest uh, a lot of the taxpayers' money, you're going to invest a lot of the time of scientists and engineers and project managers and other other support staff to uh, build and implement one of these projects or missions, and so you want to have some bit of confidence that you're going to see something uh, and that the thing you're going to see is going to be interesting. But if you knew exactly what it was you're going to see and exactly what it was going to look like through your instrument, well, then there's not a whole lot of point in building it anyways. Um, you know, so you also want to kind of have that ability to have some unknown. So finding the right balance there uh, you know, is, is, a, is a challenge um, as sort of an institutional and actually at a societal level. Uh, how much do we want to invest on these uh, truly kind of open-ended kind of projects? So I think uh, you know, LIGO and Virgo and, and hopefully LISA uh, are going to be a good example of, of a good mix of confidence that there will be sources that we can, that we can uh, observe and that there will be science that we can get out of those sources. But hopefully what we'll see are the things that we didn't expect, uh, like you just describing. You know, so, so far, gravitational waves have given us the most massive and the least massive black hole candidates uh, to date. Um, And we'll get more of that as we continue to probe this uh, new window in the universe.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I like that you brought up was this idea of discovery potential, because for, you know, for centuries and centuries and centuries, we really only considered astronomy to be about electromagnetic radiation. And that actually started to change, I would say, not in, you know, 2015, 2016 or so, when LIGO started actually registering robust detections of gravitational waves events, I think it started to change back in 1987 when we had a supernova go off in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Um, Because the first indication we had that we had a supernova going off in our own local group wasn't this optical signal, it wasn't this electromagnetic signal of any type, it was the fact that we got a flood of neutrinos from, you know, the star that went supernova. And in our neutrino detectors around the world, which we didn't even call neutrino detectors at the time, these were experiments that were looking for nuclear decays that happened to be sensitive to a neutrino signal, uh, this really brought a new type of astronomy to the forefront, this idea of particle-based astronomy. Now we have three fundamental ways of looking at the universe. We can look with different forms and wavelengths of light. We can look for particles and we can look with gravitational waves. We've started calling this multi-messenger astronomy, and even though I hate the name, I do love the concept. Um, What is it like for you to work in one of these uh, novel fields in which we look at the universe in a way that's completely fundamentally different from our electromagnetic eyes?
1: Well, I think you know, like like any kind of uh, quality, there's pros and cons. Um, so you know, on the one hand, it's 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 nice to be different. It's nice to have uh, have some unique qualities uh, to your field, um, and to have an opportunity to go on shows like this and and explain uh, what it's all about to the wider population. You know, on the other hand, we exist in a, a community of astronomers, um, and you know, they're very welcoming, but. You know, we speak a different language. We kind of have a bit of a different, different culture, and so sometimes there can be uh, some differences in just how we approach problems and some challenges in communicating. Um, you know what our missions do, uh, what our data is like, uh, what the engineering requirements are like. Um, but for me, I actually find that a, a as much of a uh, opportunity as it is a challenge, and uh, I, I really enjoy trying to communicate, both you know, communicating in general public, but trying to communicate to other scientists, other engineers uh, that are working on the projects and, you know, you need to understand uh, how how you look, how your field looks uh, from their perspective in order to communicate effectively. Um, So I think being in this new field gives me an opportunity to uh, do that.
0: Well, that's pretty exciting. That's a that's a unique perspective, you know, because I I look at this and I think, you know, oh, like these are these are going to be complementary fields, right? Like there was this big debate over the first gravitational wave detection, the one that you measure you mentioned earlier of GW fifteen o nine fourteen, where one of the teams of X um, of gamma ray X ray telescopes, the Fermi collaboration, uh, they claimed to see a signal that was coincident in time. Time with the black hole black hole merger that LIGO saw and there was this initial like real like Wondering of oh wow are these black holes when they merge together? Are they actually producing x-rays because we don't expect them to we don't expect them to the same way that neutron star mergers do um, And yet the Fermi gamma-ray telescope claims to have seen it now 50-some-odd events later, uh, they've never seen a second one, and we've seen plenty of merging black holes. And and other satellites like the ESA integral satellite, um, they haven't seen it either. So it looks like that might have just been a spurious thing. But there is incredible, I'll use your term again, discovery potential, when you are looking at the sky in fundamentally different ways at the same time. Because if you see something in one channel and you either do or don't see that same event in another channel, that's another opportunity to learn something new about the universe.
1: You're right, absolutely, and that's where this, uh, and I agree with you that the term is a little awkward, but this multi-messenger term uh, is is all about, um, and it it comes from this idea of multi-wavelength astronomy. I think again, as you described in the introduction, we move from having just the visible spectrum, you know, spectrum visible to the human eye, to this very broad uh, suite of instruments and and techniques, and even astronomers that would specialize in okay, I do X-ray astronomy or infrared astronomy. And you know, more more recently, uh, astronomers have become generalists. They've become Uh, abilities to to look at multiple different instruments and synthesize all that data, and that went by the term multi-wavelength astronomy. So you get the full color picture, the the hyper color picture of uh, what the universe looks like. And now we're adding other uh, channels of information Another analogy we use a lot, which I like in particular for gravitational waves, is uh, the sound. It's, you know, of course there's no sound in space because there's no medium to carry that sound. But if you're willing to, you know, no pun intended, stretch the analogy and think of the fabric of space-time as being the medium that sound could propagate in, and, and that sound would be gravitational waves. The math is totally different, right? The gravitational waves don't behave like sound sound waves. But, uh, you know, it's, it is a little bit like sound in the sense that, um, with the electromagnetic telescopes, generally, we're pretty good at being able to pinpoint where the source is on the sky. You know, we know where the telescope's pointing; that's where the source is on the sky. With the gravitational wave detectors, uh, they are sensitive to the entire sky all of the time, more or less. Uh, so, when you get a source, it's actually kind of difficult to figure out where it came from. The ground-based detectors have to deal with with uh, multiple. Uh, detectors spread around the earth and looking at the difference in arrival times for those signals to figure out where on the sky the source is coming from and that's a little bit like the way your ears uh, do localization of sound, right? They see, you know, you hear something on your right ear versus your left ear with a slight delay and your brain's able to figure out where it is but not nearly as well as, you know, if you see a flash of light and your eyes can figure out where it is. So there's a lot of nice analogies between the sort of listening to the universe thing Um, and that as far as particle astrophysics you'd have to find some other place. maybe it's a you're getting drifts of particles coming towards you so maybe you're smelling the universe but I'm not sure they would they would like that term as much as we like listening to the universe.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a lot easier to translate uh, the waves that we see because they are waves, they have frequencies, they have amplitudes. It's a lot easier to translate that into sound waves and have someone listen to that. In fact, some of you might have heard the sound of the uh, famous neutron star-neutron star merger, where it's sort of this low hum that that rises in frequency and amplitude and then is followed two seconds later by the arrival of x-rays which i've heard represented as a ding. Um which is really fun because that's that's the sort of thing that we recognize as, oh, it increases in volume, it which means amplitude increase. It increases in frequency, which means the pitch rises. And then it stops, and that's when the black holes, you know, or the neutron stars actually merge together and stop spiraling, um, and you stop getting the gravitational waves. And then just a second or two later, the electromagnetic single, signal arrives— and that's the ding that you hear, and and I thought that was a very clever representation and translation. Certainly, until you're sending out scratch and sniff stickers over the computer, I think sound is a much better analogy to use. Yeah,
1: yeah and and uh, so that waveform you described, we call that a chirp, because um, that's the it's the same kind of sound you hear uh, in if you looked at a bird chirping, um, and we use these uh, audio techniques, you know, th- th- there's not so much of the sort of Jody Foster uh, put on the headphones and, and listen to your detector but in principle with the LIGO detectors and the other ground-based detectors you could do that because the output is you know, it, the low end but it's in the uh, the human audio band. Um, so, so the other interesting thing, this is maybe a bit, a bit technical, but uh, for the gravitational wave detectors we actually measure the uh, field quantity. So we measure the amplitude of the gravitational waves going up and down and up and down, whereas electromagnetic detectors generally uh, measure the power that's delivered. So they measure the brightness of a source. And so there's information that's encoded in the way that it's going up and down and in the relative timing of how it's going up and down, what we call the phase. And we use that information to uh, pick out Things about the the source, things like the mass of the black holes and their distance and their location on the sky, that we couldn't otherwise get if we were just measuring the the brightness or the intensity of the radiation.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's really fascinating because uh, combined with what you said earlier about having uh, multiple ears and multiple detectors for for LIGO, um, it's really fascinating to see how much more sensitive you can get once you start adding a third detector in there, that that is really something that just helps you tremendously in understanding your source in terms of where it is, where the signal's coming from, right? There's a reason that when we uh, measure earthquakes on the Earth, we use a series of seismometers all around the Earth's surface, and when these various waves arrive, we can use that to reconstruct okay, how far are we from the epicenter? How big was the amplitude of what we measured? And they call the process of pinpointing where the epicenter is, they call that triangulation because you really need three sources in order to pin down exactly where it is. And when we went from the twin LIGO detectors to having the first two LIGO detectors plus the Virgo detector, we were really able to improve our localization because it isn't just measuring, you know, the strain sensitivity. It isn't just measuring the the amplitude of these waves. It's also being able to sort of measure all of these parameters together from the different detectors and combine them together to get as much information about the original signal as you can possibly obtain.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the addition of Virgo To the network was really critical uh, for getting the sky localization as as you described. Um, So basically, for each pair of detectors, you get a ring. On the sky, so you know, ring going all the way, or if you were to look on the Earth, sort of a ring uh, as to where the, the wave was first impacting the Earth's surface. Um, and if you can get different pairs of detectors in different locations, you get these different rings and they intersect one another, um, and then you can really rapidly uh, uh, neck down and figure out where it is on the sky. And that's very important for any kind of multi messenger. Uh, follow-up if you're going to try to point a telescope at it because you know as impressive as it is for here's an example of a a language difference right so for uh, or cultural difference for a gravitational wave astronomer we see a source that's localized a few tens of square degrees on the sky and we say oh my goodness what an incredible localization well, you know, for for many types of electromagnetic uh, astronomers, that's basically like equivalent to the whole sky. It would take them months to survey all the sources that they have in that in that area. Um, and so, we have to to in order to enable that multi-messenger astronomy, uh, we need to get to the point where we can uh, detect something with these gravitational wave detectors, identify that there's a source in a particular area on the sky, and get that area restricted to the point where you know, ideally a series of electromagnetic telescopes, uh, both on the ground and in space, can go after that and try to figure out uh, where is the source that, that, that's of interest, get rid of all the other, um, you know, because the universe is a confusing place. There's lots of things going on. Uh, so identify the one that's actually associated with the gravitational wave event, and then, uh, you know, get all the rich bit of information we can get from this centuries of, uh, of heritage and history and development of technology for the rest of astronomy.
0: You know, I think I think that's such a key point. And just for those of you listening who are like, I don't I don't understand about like tens of square degrees and why that's good and why that's bad, if you consider the entire sky, the entire sky is visible from Earth, it's forty thousand square degrees. Forty thousand square degrees. So if you can get that down to tens of square degrees, you're basically chopping out like of the sky or more and being left with just this tiny amount where you know your gravitational wave signal arose from. So that's a tremendous achievement. But if you're looking through a really powerful telescope, you're not only looking at like, oh, one square degree on the sky. No, you're looking at things like a square arc minute or a few square arc seconds, where an arc minute is a 60th of a degree on a side and an arc second is a 60th of an arc minute. So we're talking about tiny, tiny, tiny regions of sky with electromagnetic astronomy and it seems like an unreachable goal to have gravitational wave astronomy get there and yet for every little improvement that gravitational wave astronomy makes you are slashing the area on the sky that electromagnetic follow-ups need to look at so if you slash it by a factor of two they only have half the region to look at so i think this is this is as you said earlier a really complementary approach one of the things I'd like to ask you about, if you'd be willing, is um, is to sort of look at the difference between what we can do on the ground with detectors like LIGO and Virgo that we have today with three or four kilometer long arms versus what we can learn if we build a gravitational wave detector in space. because. Even though many, many things are different, to me, it's always seemed like the most enormous difference is the fact that from space, you are not restricted by Earth's surface or Earth's curvature. You don't need to have arms that are only a few kilometers long you know i know some people have talked about oh maybe we can build a scaled up version of ligo that's 10 times as long that has like 40 kilometer arms instead of four kilometer arms uh and that's a pretty big deal but it's nothing compared to what you can do with lisa where you can talk about having these spacecraft flying at distances greater than even the diameter of planet earth
1: yeah absolutely yeah. So, so the real motivation for this is, you know, as you described, gravitational waves are an entire spectrum onto themselves. So just like in electromagnetic astronomy, you know, we have different kinds of detectors that uh, go after different parts of the spectrum because there's different sources and different physics that's going on there. Uh, we want to do the same thing for gravitational waves. Um, and so the ground-based detectors their single biggest expense, right? It's actually not all the high technology of the mirrors and the lasers and all that stuff. It's the vacuum systems, right? So they can't afford to have their laser beam uh, diffracted and otherwise interfered with by the air. And so they have these four kilometer long tubes or three kilometers in the case of the Virgo detector, which are evacuated, right? We pump all all the air out of them and building, you know, four kilometers or eight kilometers if you want to do the whole L-shape of vacuum system, high vacuum system, is very expensive. Um, and so if you're, you talk about some of these plans to scale up the LIGO detector uh, to maybe a, a 40 kilometer detector, well you're gonna have to spend a, even more money uh, on your vacuum system. And actually there you have to spend a lot of money on sort of simple engineering problems because you have to deal with the curvature of the Earth. The Earth isn't flat over scales of, of 40 kilometers. So if you go to space, as you say, you can. You can now. You've got the vacuum, right? You had to pay for that rocket, but once you've paid for that rocket, you can make the the detectors as far apart effectively as you want. Um, you just have to make sure you, your laser power has enough oomph to get the light from one end to the other. And the whole reason why you want to uh, extend the the arm length is that uh, the the waves. Make as I described, there's sort of these waves in the in the fabric of space-time. That's what the gravitational waves are. So they are moving uh, your objects, you know, back and forth, or up and down, left and right, you know, what, whatever you where you want to think about it. Um, but the waves have a characteristic wavelength, and their wavelength is related to their frequency, just the same way as light waves are related to their frequency. It's actually the same relation. They both propagate at the speed of light, and so you want to build your detector to have an arm length that's about the same size as the wavelength that you're trying to observe. So the LIGO detectors, they observe wavelengths um, that are hundreds of meters, um, or maybe actually even a little bit shorter than that, or if you've turned it into frequencies, it's frequencies of 10 hertz, 100 hertz, kilohertz kind of thing. So that means These black holes that LIGO is observing are going around each other many times per second uh, in the last part of their merger, which is already kind of mind-blowing to think about uh, uh, objects that are tens of times the mass of our sun going around one another multiple times per second. If you go to, and you make the detectors bigger, you can see even longer wavelength or lower frequency uh, gravitational waves. So by the time you get up to something like LISA, what, which actually has million kilometer scale arms, so the current design is 2.5 million kilometers, so roughly a million times bigger than LIGO, uh, you're now looking at, at much lower wavelengths which corresponds to having much larger objects. So one of the marquee sources for LISA would be take that LIGO source that we already know about, the tens of solar mass uh, black holes orbiting one another, but now they are million solar mass, or 100,000 solar mass black holes, that are orbiting one another. This is the kind of thing we would see in a galaxy merger, where you have two galaxies each with its own massive black hole in the center that merge, and those black holes find their way to the uh, bottom of the potential well of that merged galaxy and start orbiting one another and eventually crash into one another. And there the time scales are on orders of minutes to hours, um, which, okay, not as fast, but now we're talking about things weighing you know, millions of times the mass of our sun going around each other several times per hour, which, again, is kind of mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really incredible. You're really talking about, like... Um, We're going from what I would call stellar mass black holes, which are the kinds of black holes that arise from individual stars going supernova or direct collapsing or otherwise ending their lives and becoming black holes, to... Uh, What we consider supermassive black holes, or the black holes that we really only find at the center of massive objects like entire galaxies. The Milky Way's central black hole is 4 million solar masses. The one at the center of Andromeda is like 80 million solar masses. And the one that we saw with the Event Horizon Telescope, that one's over 6 billion solar masses. And that one, I think, is, is too massive for Lisa to see. But for ones in that lower mass range, around a million solar masses, give or take, uh, Lisa's really going to be like, the primo tool that you could imagine for this because you're gonna have the large enough amplitude from you know hundred thousand million solar mass black holes that it'll actually be able to pick up that signal but you're also going to have that idea of it's going to have the right frequency it's going to have the right frequency to be coincident with those longer arms and that longer spacecraft separation Um, and because of the fact that you don't have any of these terrestrial confounding factors you you don't have seismic noise you don't have human activity uh like logging and trucks and all of that stuff that that you actually have to deal with on the surface of the earth um you don't have those same sources of noise in space and so you can do a lot more with even less sensitivity like you don't you don't need that same like what is it 10 to the minus 19 meter precision of knowing how far away the mirrors are from the beam splitter or the recombining is in the LIGO laser arms. You don't need that same level of precision when you're in space you just need to know how your spacecrafts are moving relative to each other over time and all of a sudden this whole new regime of these massive massive black holes opens up to you and gravitational wave astronomy can do what nothing has ever done before.
1: Yeah, so a couple things I wanted to uh, react to on that. Maybe I'm going to do it in reverse order because of the, the way it's now in my brain. But on the on the measurement mm-hmm. front, uh, there's another advantage you get to making your detector uh, larger. So gravitational waves are a stretching of space-time. And so that means that the further apart you put your your points of measurement, uh, the bigger the stre- amplitude of the stretch is. So if you take the same gravitational wave and you measure it over one meter uh you know, arm length, you get a certain signal. And if you measure it over 10 meter arm length, that same gravitational wave, you get 10 times the signal. So when we take our, the, something like the LIGO detectors and scale it up by a factor of a million, we're basically turning up the response in the detector by a factor of a million. And that's why we don't have to measure uh, nearly as precise as the uh, as the LIGO and Virgo detectors have to measure in order to make the same kind of gravitational wave amplitude uh, measurements. And so that's really important because what they're doing at LIGO and Virgo and these other uh, ground-based detectors, you know, they're pushing the fundamental limits as to how well uh, you can measure things that come from quantum mechanics. In fact, they're even manipulating some of the uh, quantum mechanics using these things called squeezed vacuum states, which is some really fascinating stuff, in order to improve the sensitivity of the, of the detector. Um, on the LISA side, you know, we're a factor of a million away from that. Um, so we only have to deal with picometers, a uh, uh, part in ten, part in a trillion of a meter, as, a part, as opposed to you know, part in ten to the 19 or ten to the 20. Uh, these these ridiculously small numbers, um, and that's good because we have to do it in space, uh, which means it's got to sort of operate on its own. We have to launch it in a rocket. It has to survive all all, all of that kind of thing. Um, and then the other point I wanted to get to was about the black holes. We were talking earlier about how. Uh, Prior to the LIGO observations, there was a range of masses of black holes which were known from electromagnetic observations uh, for these stellar remnant black holes, these these lighter uh, black holes. And I think the same is true. And most you know theorists and modelers, which is not what I do, would agree that the same is probably true for the very massive black holes. The ones that we tend to see at the centers of galaxies tend to be the bigger ones, and that's because Uh, for an obvious reason the bigger ones end up being brighter more gas is falling into them and so the electromagnetic signal the x-rays the optical the infrared uh, the radio even is brighter uh, for those really big black holes and so those tend to be the ones we see but if you look at many of the models of how galaxies were built up uh, from the early perturbations and, and, and density of the early universe—you uh, expect that they're sort of built up in this tree. You have uh, smaller black holes which merge together, and also, you know, gain through their own accretion of gases, gain, gain mass, and they eventually become black holes like we see at the center of our Milky Way. So we think there should be lots of—you uh, know, 100,000, maybe 10,000 solar mass black holes uh, in the earlier epochs of the universe, and those should merge quite often, and those are the mergers that Lisa might be able to see, and it would be really difficult to see those with electromagnetic telescopes because they would be far away, they're from an early part in the universe, and they would be electromagnetically dim uh, because they're just smaller objects. And so that gives you another example of where we think we might be able to look at a totally different area uh, than we've currently looked at electromagnetically
0: yeah and i think that's also fascinating because it sort of brings up you know a number of of possibilities for where can this go in the future? Can we learn how supermassive black holes grow to become these ultra-massive black holes? Like, how come How come the Milky Way has one that's only four million solar masses while other galaxies have black holes that are more than a thousand times as massive? What What happens to cause and lead to that growth? Um, we can ask, you know, how much of this growth is driven by the mergers of black holes that are close together in in mass, like say 200,000 solar mass black holes, versus what happens when you have a 100,000 solar mass black hole merging with a with a black hole that's only 10,000 or 1,000 or maybe even less mass than that. Um, how frequently do those things happen? And, um, you know, we have... We only know the universe to the precision that we've measured it so far. It seems like Lisa is not only going to help us answer some of these questions that we know how to ask, but it may reveal populations of objects that we don't even know are out there today. It may reveal cataclysmic events or these rare phenomena that occur that we don't even know that we should be looking for. And that, to me, is one of the most real exciting things. That's that's the untapped discovery potential that you can't even predict, knowing what we know today.
1: Right, and I think all of us that uh, that work in any of these fields, you know, and it's, it's true for um, for for an established field as well. Uh, you're always hoping to find something new, but I think that hope is a little bit a uh, little bit greater. Um, and you know, we want to do the things that we are expecting to do. So I certainly want to. Uh, hope Lisa observes many, many massive black holes, and uh, we measure their masses and we're able to provide some information uh, and contribute to our to uh, understanding of the uh, formation and buildup of all these black holes. But what I would love would be a signal that we just have no idea where it's coming from. I mean, the something analogous to this, fast radio bursts that uh, have been... You know, generating all kinds of interesting theory papers or the early gamma ray bursts uh, where it took a long time to figure out where these things might be coming from. Uh, I would be just ecstatic to have uh, LIGO or LISA or, or any of the other uh, gravitational wave detectors uh, start getting a confirmed detection of a source that we just have no idea where it's coming from. That would be the most exciting thing.
0: Yeah, I I hope you do get that. And I, I kind of, I don't know why, I don't expect that to happen for LIGO and Virgo, but for Lisa somehow, I do expect that to happen. It's almost like Lisa to me is looking in such an unknown regime, in such an untested regime, because we don't have nearly the information we have about the black holes that exist in the centers of galaxies at these high masses as we do for the ones that, you know, as we do for the ones that are just throughout our galaxy and stellar masses, we we don't have the same level of population statistics. You know, we have all of this great unknown out there. We have these active galaxies with active black holes and they're eating mass. And um, we know that there are black holes in them. If we look at the Chandra X-ray deep field, we see that there are black holes, supermassive ones at the centers of pretty much every massive galaxy out there. Um, I think because of how they have to be built up, how they have to occur over time, because of all the billions and billions of stars that exist in every one of these galaxies, there has to be a way for these black holes to merge and grow and add up to these enormous figures. I would honestly be surprised if we didn't find these populations of massive black holes that weren't quite at the ultra massive or supermassive level that were nevertheless much more massive than any stellar mass black hole that we know of exists what are your thoughts on an idea like that
1: well I'll have to preface it with you know my my background and training is more on the instrument building side of things so uh, I, I don't basis uh on particular expertise but I agree with you I think it's it's very likely that there will be uh uh, there won't be major gaps in the what we call the mass function of black holes the uh you know how many black holes you have as a function of mass at the moment there's this uh fairly major gap for these things called intermediate mass black holes so things say maybe around a thousand solar masses um but that's starting to to potentially get filled in there's some really uh you know, tantalizing, tentative evidence from electromagnetic observations. And I think a mission like LISA, or maybe other missions similar to LISA that targeted those specifically, uh, will, will really answer that question of whether they're there, I think they likely are, and how many there are, and what kind of environments they live in, and all that other kind of stuff that helps them, uh, helps our, us understand their astrophysical context. Um, so I'm sure there will be astrophysical uh, surprises and, that come out of LISA as there already have been with with LIGO. And I think it's possible and and you know I've got a physics background as, as I know you do, um, that there could be some sort of fundamental physics backgrounds uh, and, and surprises. There could be uh, you know little cosmic stream cusps or there could be uh, vacuum phase transitions, you know these very exotic kind of things that produce little bursts of gravitational waves. It's sort of hard uh, to to not produce gravitational waves in some of these very high energy um, events and so they end up being a very nice uh, probe for some of these things that are otherwise maybe very difficult to try to get a handle on.
0: You know, I think that's a that's a really fascinating phenomenon. We we always talk in the physics community about pushing the energy frontiers, and almost always that's in the context of building a newer, larger, more powerful particle collider, like a like a super steroided up version of the Large Hadron Collider uh, over in CERN right now, but That pales in comparison to the astrophysical energies that the universe's natural particle accelerators, pulsars, neutron stars, black holes, and supermassive black holes uh, can produce as a regular run-of-the-mill thing. If we take a look in terms of energy, the most powerful particles we create at the Large Hadron Collider are on the order of about you know, we say they are about 70 TeV in energy, which if I were to round off in terms of EVs, which is electron volts, we're talking about 10 to the 13 EVs in energy. Uh, we routinely see cosmic rays, particles, etc. coming from the universe that are maybe 10 million times that value, that are up at around 10 to the 20 EV in energy, 10 to the 20 electron volts in energy. When we're talking about possible events that Lisa could see, um, we're talking about probes of the high-energy universe that can go factors of millions beyond anything we can really imagine achieving in reasonable timescales with reasonable amounts of investment. compared to anything we can do on Earth. I think that looking to gravitational waves and looking to the universe itself, we're never going to find a particle accelerator. We're never going to create a particle accelerator that could ever compete with the types of energies that a supermassive black hole or a or a completely dense neutron star that's more massive than the entire solar system could achieve.
1: Right, and, and of course, that is the... The motivation behind this whole field of particle astrophysics, which is the you know field that has produced those events that you've described, um, and you know. Whether so far we don't have a direct association between one of these particle astrophysics events and a and a gravitational wave event, I think there's expectation that for for things like neutron star mergers and supernova and the like uh, that there there potentially could be, uh, but there could be you know even more exotic things, the types of things. And again, this is outside my field of expertise. This is going to sound like I don't I don't have expertise. I promise you, I do. Uh, but that the uh, in the early universe, some some of the cosmology, uh, you could end up with with interesting things, relics of inflation, cosmic strings, these kinds of things, which could potentially produce uh, a little burst of gravitational waves that could be observable by, by any of these detectors. Um, but you know that that's sort of at the at the far end of the of both this speculation, but also the excitement uh, scale. Uh, you know, we already are, are very excited about the uh, the, the data we, we know we're gonna get uh, from these massive black holes. But there's a couple other sources that might be worth uh, touching on um, because they'll actually form the bulk of the sources that Lisa observes. Um, and that's the, the uh, binaries in our own Milky Way and also these things called extreme mass ratio in spirals. So if we had some time, I'd talk about both of those.
0: Well, I think I think we can make time for both of those. When we when we talk about events in the Milky Way, one of the things that's always struck me as fascinating is when we look at what LIGO and Virgo see, they're really only seeing those last either seconds or even fractions of a second of these two masses in spiraling and merging. That's really the only time where the signal that we can see rises above the noise floor of the detectors. But these things, they start out farther apart. They in spiral over very long periods of time, over Probably tens or even hundreds of millions of years in most cases. So, one of the things that I've been curious about is what are the prospects for LISA identifying these inspiraling and destined to merge black holes when they're far apart that it can then look at and say, hey, by the way, in two years, and four months, and two weeks, and one day, and six hours, and 14 minutes, and five seconds, we know these two black holes that Lisa just observed are going to merge and show up in the LIGO detector. If that can be achieved, that would be like a tremendous leap forward to me, to be able to say, when we look and we know when that set of objects is going to reappear again and make this signal in this other detector.
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a um, really exciting prospect that, that really has only been seriously considered since the, the LIGO detection, um, and we call this multi-wavelength gravitational wave astronomy. So borrowing a term from our uh, electromagnetic cousins, um, that we could imagine two Gravitational wave observatories, you know, LISA and a, a future ground-based detector, uh, one of the descendants of LIGO and Virgo, um, observing the same astrophysical source and observing it, you know, almost in the in the same same epoch. Uh, and one of the key things there was that, as we mentioned early on, the the LIGO detection was of a more massive than had generally been assumed. Uh, uh, pair of massive black holes, so you know, 30 solar mass kind of thing, which actually boosts the signal up in the LISA band as well. Um, so made it now that we know those types of sources exist, uh, it's more likely that, that LISA could detect one. There's a big trade-off between those sources being rare, and so they have to be far away, um, and so you have to play all these games of rates and stuff, which are, are, are difficult to play when you don't know how common these sources are. but. You know, LIGO and its, and its brethren uh, over the time between now and when LISA flies will certainly help us answer that question of how common these kinds of sources are. And so for the right pair of parameters, um, it would be possible for LISA to see a black hole system uh, for you know many months, um, you know even even years uh, before it merges, and then basically what happens is as Lisa's observing it, it it starts to move to a higher and higher and higher frequency, and eventually gets to the point where Lisa can't track it anymore. Um, in part because the wavelength just becomes small compared to the Lisa, Lisa detector, so you basically start to lose sensitivity because you're getting multiple compressions and and stretching along your your LISA arm length, Um, and so they they tend to cancel each other out and you don't get uh, the same sensitivity anymore, and you'd have a little gap because the LISA and LIGO uh, bands don't overlap one another, but depending upon the exact details of the source and whatever the future ground-based detector looks like, uh, that gap would be fairly short, a matter of weeks. So it's not that you would see it in, so we would detect it uh, uh, in LISA. We would say, all right, we've already identified, you know, in some years or or, or months exactly when it's going to merge. Uh, And we would continue to track it up until maybe two weeks before it it merged. And then it would show up uh, in those last few seconds in the ground-based detector. And the kind of things you could do with that is you could measure, uh, you could compare the predicted arrival time with the measured arrival time. And in doing that, you're actually kind of measuring the dispersion of gravitational waves, the idea that would gravitational waves, according to general relativity, should propagate at the same speed at all frequencies. And those, you want to see if those low frequency waves coming from LISA and those high frequency waves detected by, by, by LIGO um, would actually absor- you know, arrive at a consistent pair of times. And if they didn't, that means some weird gravitational effect is going on. And I'm sure you'd have millions of theory papers on it uh, you know, shortly thereafter.
0: Yeah. I mean, that sounds like you're looking for a type of gravitational chromatic aberration where the speed of gravitational waves is different depending on what the wavelength of your gravitational waves is. It would be as if uh, X-rays and radio waves traveled at different speeds through the vacuum of space from one another. And although we we have good evidence that that doesn't happen, uh, we do know that they travel at different speeds through various media, that if you have a, a medium that light travels through Uh, different wavelengths will travel at different speeds. And so we might learn something about, I don't know if there's a gravitational dielectric to space or if traveling through a galaxy doesn't cause this kind of gravitational chromatic aberration. Again, we don't expect it. It's not predicted in Einstein's general relativity, but this is, I guess, another exciting test that Lisa will be able to perform for free if it can observe these classes of objects that are also seen in LIGO and Virgo,
1: exactly. Now, so those sources are, you know, we're kind of—I um, don't know if I can put a percentage on it, but uh, it's a—it's not a certainly not a guarantee that we would be able to to uh, detect one of those sources. But what is guaranteed is, um, you know, the sources that the the stars that end up producing these massive black holes, if that's actually where they come from, the, the ones that which LIGO is observing, and that's kind of an open question right now, um, but we know that you know, the stars that produce the, the black holes are the very massive ends of the stellar mass spectrum, and that there's many 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 more stars that produce lighter compact objects, some neutron stars, but even more uh, things called white dwarfs, and so um, our Milky Way, as many other galaxies, is populated with huge numbers of these white dwarf objects many of which are in binaries so you have a pair of white dwarfs or you have a white dwarf with a neutron star or a white dwarf with a main sequence star all these kinds of combinations of binaries and many of those systems um they as they tend to uh uh evolve so that the the systems get closer to one another through all kinds of very complicated and interesting astrophysical processes uh they can eventually enter the regime where they start emitting significant gravitational waves and that tends to be in the LISA band And so the current predictions that there would be millions of white dwarf systems that are emitting gravitational waves in the Lisa frequency band and that we would be able to identify tens of thousands of these sources over the duration of our mission, and they're basically on the whole time, right? They're they're very slowly evolving, but over the timescale of a several-year LISA mission, they stay almost at the same frequency. Some of them moving moving a little bit, uh, and that's what allows us to eventually disentangle all of them because they're there the whole time. A lot, a lot like you know, uh, rather than looking for a transient burst. of of gravitational waves like we've done so far this is a a persistent gravitational wave source Um, and a cool thing about them is that there's actually something like a dozen sources which are already measured electromagnetically right that's how we know these systems exist and you can go back and compute uh, from general relativity how big would the signal be in lisa and you say well gosh we would see that one in two days of integration or we'd see that one in a month of integration Um, and so there's something like a dozen known sources just sort of by happenstance uh, which are guaranteed sources for 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 lisa to have um and you talked about what was it like you know being in gravitational wave astronomy uh, before there was a gravitational wave detection while well, those of us working on lisa always like to tout the fact that we had you know a dozen guaranteed sources as as uh an advantage over some of the our ground-based colleagues and of course they've far eclipsed that with all the the sources that they've they've measured so far um but I think it's really neat to imagine a catalog of you know, tens of thousands of uh, white dwarf binaries measured with their masses and their distances and their sky localizations and all this kind of stuff. You can make maps of the Milky Way in white dwarf binaries. And there you're really doing some of that bread and butter astronomy work. Um, you know, understanding end states of stellar evolution, understanding the structure of the Milky Way, and and really contributing to the uh, to the some of the core parts of the astronomical field. And I think it's cool that one instrument like Lisa can do that kind of uh, stellar and galactic astronomy, and also do this extragalactic astronomy, and also do fundamental physics.
0: I mean, I think that's just incredible. And what you're what you're also telling me with this is that because of the way lisa works because it doesn't have like a mirror and gather light from one part of the sky it's constantly taking all of the gravitational wave signals that are passing through space Um, it's basically like listening to a stadium full of all these different individual tens of thousands of individual white dwarf binary voices all singing together and It has the power to tease out each individual voice. What are you saying? What are the notes you're singing? Where are you singing them from? And it can do this. We know that Lisa will have the technical capabilities of taking these tens of thousands of sources that we expect to be out there and disentangling these superimposed voices one on top of the other individually. That that to me is, that is just a mind blowing feat that Lisa is pretty much, if it works as expected, Lisa is guaranteed to accomplish.
1: Right, so there, there's a couple keys that, that enable us to be able to do this um, or to expect that we'll be able to do this and I should say you know LIGO is already prototyping many of these same techniques one of the keys is that um, we need to know what the sources quote-unquote look like or what they sound like if you want to use the sound analogy in a very precise way and so you know the, the this is sort of where things cut both ways right we, we now have a very good uh, indication that general relativity is the right theory of gravity, or at least is a theory that is correct enough that it, it uh, models what we observe from the gravitational waves. And so we can basically get a template. We say, okay, if I make, and I oftentimes we have to use supercomputers to make these, these, these templates, and that's been a whole decades-long effort to, called numerical relativity, uh, to develop these templates. And you build up this template of what, it, what a certain pair, a combination of black holes or white dwarfs, uh, what the signal looks like, and then you basically compare millions of these templates against your detector and look for matches, look for, look for overlaps, um, and that's what allows us to be able to pick out these things, and that um, stadium analogy that rock concert analogy is a, is a great one so you could imagine the massive black holes being the really loud voices right the singer up on the stage um, with the big amplifiers you could hear them all the way across across the thing um, whereas the quieter voices uh, the people cheering in the crowd, you can hear the ones that are nearby and the, the more nearby they are and the more loud they are. You know, you can get more information about them and then that kind of fades as you go go further away. And so that's why we can see these many, many more sources that are close to us, plus a few of the really far away sources. Um, and it's it basically working that, that same way that your ear and, and really your brain does. The brain is as important as the, as the ear is. And so our brain is our uh, signal processing uh, uh, algorithms um, and technology there that, that dozens or eventually hundreds of people will be working on uh, to, to develop that critical piece of technology.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's really fascinating. One of the things you brought up earlier that I'd like to return to before uh, before this comes to a close is, will LISA be able to detect really, really significantly mismatched masses merging together. With LIGO and Virgo, um, the black holes are approximately the same masses when they merge together. You know, you can find, I think, the most extreme mass ratio they've had so far is is in the realm of about 5 to 1. But with LISA, we have this possibility that we could get much smaller masses orbiting much larger masses by factors of a hundred a thousand or even more um will lisa be able to detect that and if it can what do we expect to learn from observing completely mismatched black hole masses merging together
1: yeah that's a an excellent question so you know I think it's important to remember that it's not so much about the capabilities of the detector, it's about what the universe has provided with us with or what we expect it's provided us with for sources. And so in this band where LIGO can observe, um, the the strongest, the only black holes that we sort of know about which, which work in this band are all coming probably from from stars, and stars, you know, at least from a physicist's perspective, are all kind of the same size, all within a few orders of magnitude, and so the the mass ratios are going to be all kind of in the same, uh, you know, same regime. They're all going to be about the same mass. Um, you're not going to get hundred to one or thousand to one kind of kind of mass ratios for the massive black holes uh, that we see at the mergers of galaxies. You know, there you can have a little bit more dynamic range, a little bit more difference between uh, what a dwarf galaxy is versus a, a major uh, galaxy in a cluster. So you could see. Um, even with the massive black holes, uh, you know, 10 to the 5, falling into a 10 to the 8 kind of thing. Um, whether Lisa could see those will depend upon the exact masses, but we would expect that actually most of the sources that we see uh, will have a mass ratio of something like 10 to 1. That's what the current uh, current models, models predict. Um, and then there's this example of mixing those two kinds, or this possibility of mixing those two kinds of black holes. So you take one of those uh, massive black holes like you have at the center of our Milky Way, you know, the million solar mass type of thing. And you imagine that one of these uh, stellar remnant black holes weighing you know tens of solar masses um, falls into it. And we, we expect this happens. We see similar kinds of events when a star falls into a black hole and you get a, a tidal disruption kind of thing. Uh, we would expect that, and we see massive stars orbiting the Milky Way, right? That was one of the uh, Milky Way black hole. That was one of the Uh, evidences that we've had of of black holes prior to to gravitational waves. Right, right. That was the
0: uh, that was the SO2 star that just made its second close pass of the supermassive black hole that we saw. And congratulations again, Einstein, like general relativity, passed that test, too.
1: Yeah, so there's a good chance that that interior to that SO2 orbit that there is a you know black hole that's that's orbiting around there, right? Because it's going to be you know e- coming from an even more massive star, so it may have settled even further down in the potential well. We just can't see it, um, and you know those events will be more rare because those objects are more rare. But they're also at that at that sweet spot where they're they're bright enough or loud enough in gravitational waves. That Lisa could see them, um, you know, out to fairly moderate uh, uh, distances. You know, redshift of one, which for Lisa is kind of a moderate uh, distance, and and we call these things extreme mass ratio in spirals because the ratio of the masses can be extreme. You know, something like ten thousand, uh, and and there's two sort of bits of information you get out of this. One is you learn about the environment around that massive black hole. You learn what kind of stars, what kind of black holes are falling into it and that's really important for understanding the formation and the whole environment of that, that black hole and the stars around it. The other thing that you get is that you know, we talked about uh, gravitational waves as, a, as a, a test of Einstein's theory of gravity or a test of alternative theories of gravity um, and this is probably the most extreme test. Um, you've you've drop a 10 solar mass black hole into a uh, you know million solar mass black hole, and you get all of the kind of orbital effects that made Einstein famous, right? He was famous for this uh, perihelion advance of, of Mercury, where Mercury's orbit isn't really a closed ellipse. It actually, so sort of the ellipse walks around the sun um, a, a little bit uh, through, through every orbit. Well, if you take those same, uh, those same General relativistic effects, um, and you put them, you sort of crank them up to 11. You put them up uh, where where you have black holes involved. You can get this perihelion shift that's larger than pi, going you know more than around the entire orbit on every orbit. So the orbits aren't even really orbits. They they look like um, when you when you plot them on a computer screen, these like crazy balls of string. Uh, but they're actually direct predictions of of general relativity. And so the waveforms that come out of this, the gravitational signals that come out of this are incredibly complex and rich. Uh, they have all these bumps and wiggles which are exactly predicted by general relativity and so it's it's it makes it an um, extremely stringent test to see if your observation matches those waveforms. Um, and the two biggest challenges to this are actually on that, that side of things. It's really hard for uh, people to predict those waveforms accurately because the techniques that we use either for the the equal mass things um, or for uh, the the very the very very unequal mass things um, you, know, you know the perturbation theory or numerical relativity they don't work very well when you get into the sort of ten ten thousand to one uh, kind of regime and then the data analysis how do you find these signals and match them? Um, uh, you know, matching hundreds of thousands of, of, of little wiggles um, exactly with one another—that's another big challenge. So that's something we're working on uh, actively for for Lisa.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, that's really incredible because you're talking about black holes that they're going to have spins and they're going to have randomly aligned spins, and some of them are going to have like properly aligned spins and. They're going to not be perfectly spherical Schwarzschild-like black holes, and when you get to this level where your uh, where your orbits are basically looking like um, I don't know what to call them like insane spirographs of you know motion instead of uh, instead of ellipses that slowly process, uh, you're you're going to be able to test general relativity, or I should say, the universe is going to provide us with a test of general relativity unlike anything we've ever seen before. And it's up to us to make sure that we can make the requisite theoretical advances to know what types of signals we should be seeing before Lisa goes and actually observes them, because that's the only way we're actually going to be able to put general relativity to the type of test that we want. And it's good to hear that that this is something that people are already considering as a big problem because Lisa, as far as I understand it, isn't anticipated to launch until the 2030s. So there's a little bit of time, but this is the time to work on generating those tools and techniques to be able to probe the universe as we've never probed it before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if, if, if someone was to magically come back from the future and, and hand us the Lisa data today, um, you know, th- there'd be a large fraction of the science that we could pull out of it, but not all of it. And these extreme mass ratio in spirals are a, an example of one of those things that we are not prepared to do that analysis um, on, on real data today. Uh, and so there's there's a bunch of work to be done, um, and there's a bunch of people working on it, and, and there's improvements to be made on, on the rest of the system um, as well. but. Uh, it's going to be uh, the the providing the data and and extracting the signature, That's just going to be the beginning of the story. And there's going to be you know hopefully decades of work. And then there's going to be future missions. You know, LISA shouldn't be uh, just the it shouldn't be the the last detector uh, in space. It should just be the first. And there should be others which are you know more powerful, uh, which do other uh, parts of the of the spectrum. Uh, and this should be the beginning of gravitational wave astronomy in space.
0: Yeah, my favorite proposal that I've heard for that to go past LISA is a proposal uh, known as Big Bang Observer. Um, and whereas LISA has, you know, like you said, three spacecraft that are separated by about two and a half million kilometers, which is significantly larger than the diameter of Earth because they orbit in, a, tra- I believe, is a trailing orbit behind Earth. Um, that the three spacecraft move around a common point. Uh, But the idea of Big Bang Observer is to basically set up a Lisa or two around Earth and then another constellation of three spacecraft at basically making a... uh, an equilateral triangle around earth's orbit around the sun where you have separated by you know if you went 120 degrees in the orbit you'd have another spacecraft and another 120 you'd have another three spacecraft and another 120 and you come back to earth where you have like the lisa and the lisa analog spacecraft um, and this would be able to measure actually the the billion solar mass black holes, these ultra-massive ones that we see. They'd be able to test general relativity as never before for a system like OJ287, which is the most massive binary black hole we've ever seen, where we've got, I think, 150 solar mass, 150 million solar mass black hole orbiting an 18 billion solar mass black hole and like you said i think the orbit processes by about 270 degrees every every complete orbit so it is it is this ridiculous shape but this is an object that exists these are black holes that we know exist and we also know that lisa is not going to be sensitive to wavelengths that are this large but if we can go and build a gravitational wave detector in space on the scale of Earth's orbit, this is something that we can actually go out and measure, and we can go out and measure analogous systems to it, and maybe, if we even get lucky, we might be able to find the gravitational wave background that inflation should have imprinted on the universe in setting up the hot Big Bang, and to me, that's my favorite extension of what could come after Lisa for space-based gravitational wave astronomy. Do you uh, do you know anything more about that, or do you have any alternative proposals that we should maybe know about?
1: Well, there, so there's a there's a number of, of different proposals. There's actually, a number of different proposals using that big Big Bang Observer moniker. Uh, the one that I'm most familiar with uh, is a little bit like what you described, although it it doesn't measure the very long baselines between those multiple small Lisa constellations. And so what it really does is it tries to go after, as the the name implies, that, uh, that, that basically analog to the cosmic microwave background that was called the cosmic gravitational wave background um, and, it, and in order to do that, you need to subtract all the gravitational wave signals in the universe that are uh, that are between you and that uh, that early part of the universe where you had a gravitational wave signal. And so it needs to have very good angular resolution and very good um, uh, identification of the astrophysical gravitational wave sources to to subtract them. And so that's that would be one way you could you could try to do that. Uh, for, for going after that signal but there'll be other astrophysical signals you mentioned that they're the very uh, very massive black holes and you could imagine doing something like scaling up the, the Lisa uh, uh, concept up to something like you know that's that a triangle inscribing the orbit of, uh, of Earth around this around the Sun uh, we'd need some different technology we'd certainly need you know bigger telescopes bigger lasers that that kind of thing and and importantly communication architectures to get the data from that far away. Uh, and you, you're you're going to scale up your your signals uh, by sort of another factor, of, you know, a hundred to three hundred, something like that. Um, so you could get to to more massive black holes uh, to, for that hundred to three hundred. You're still not going to get to the biggest ones that we know about. Um, and to do that, we're actually better off switching gears and letting uh, letting the Milky Way uh, provide you with its own gravitational wave detector, which is a thing we we haven't talked about, and another thing I don't have a lot of expertise in, called pulsar timing astronomy. Um, and I'm sure you could find a, a, a number of excellent guests to to talk to your audience about pulsar timing astronomy. But briefly, uh, as the name implies, it uses a network of very well-timed pulsars. So these pulsars are these spinning neutron stars that basically act as, as very accurate clocks and we observe them on the earth and if a gravitational wave passes through the galaxy it affects these pulsars and it affects the earth at different times as it, as it uh, interacts with the pulsars and interacts with the earth and you get this pattern of time shifts in your pulsar arrival times which uh, corresponds to the gravitational wave and that technique could be used to see the most massive black holes uh, merging that, that we know about 10 to 9, 10 to the 10 uh, solar mass uh, black holes, or even a combination of many of those things uh, merging together. So so that's a whole other part of the gravitational wave spectrum with a completely different uh, approach to the measurement that we haven't talked about yet, uh, that's just another part of this new window on the universe.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And I believe I've talked about that in the past with uh, both Leo Stein and Aaron McDonald when I've had them on the podcast, because that's a, that's a fascinating field. And like you said, um, these pulsars are there, they're the most accurate natural clocks in the universe. In fact, for a while, they even surpassed atomic clocks for timekeeping, and so if you get a gravitational wave that passes through all these different pulsars by measuring the variation in the timing of the pulses that arrive, you can actually infer what you can actually infer information about the signals that must have created these gravitational waves from the distant universe and these include these billion plus solar mass gravita uh these billion plus solar mass black holes in spiraling and merging together it's a it's a really fascinating field ira i want to thank you for appearing on our podcast and taking the time to do this are there any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with about either you or Lisa or gravitational wave astronomy in general?
1: Well, uh, maybe one thought that I often uh, uh, give to to audiences, particularly if the audiences are including uh, younger members, is that, as you mentioned, Lisa is something which is not expected to launch until the early 2030s, and so you think about where you're going to be in 10 or 15 or 20 years, Uh, you know, Lisa would still be flying then, Um, and so the people that are largely doing the the day-to-day work on these things are graduate students, our are postdocs, our are early-career faculty, um, and the engineers and the managers and the operators and everybody else that contribute to these large missions. And you know that could be one of you if you're sitting there as a as an elementary school or middle school student. Um, you'll be in the perfect time in your career uh, to participate in this. So think about it. We're going to need you.
0: Well, thank you for getting that message out there. We do need you. I hope to all of you out there listening that this has been interesting. I know for me it's been enlightening. And uh, always stay curious about what's out there in the universe. We have these theories that we accept as, you know, this is this is the best that we understand the universe today, Einstein's general relativity, quantum field theory, and the standard model. And yet we know at some fundamental level, the universe has to go beyond either one of them alone. And it could be that clues from LISA or other gravitational wave detectors could be that key evidence that leads us beyond where we are right now. Thanks to Ira for joining us, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go out, too. Chad Marler, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Matt Conroe, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Pierre Franson, Chris Jakutas, Punitive Expedition, Charles Buchanan, Jeffrey David Maricini, Rob Hansen, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Baron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyen, Dominic Turpin, Pavel Zuzelski, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Jerry Wilterding, Laird WH, Ahmed Lee Kamzi, Sean Foley, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcick, Danny, Mike, Chris hilly Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Chuck dannin Vlad Peshkovsky, Paul Lester, Alfredo Vivanco, Lalina Menenti, Gabrielle Nader, Arnulfo Zepeda, Tomas Walgren, Sam Terzakian, James Page, Jeff Renike, James Fitzwater, Tina Tallon, Rich Weigel, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Dick Pills, Henna Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Randall Slimak, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip. Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, and Philip Ratelovic. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.